Hello, everybody. My name is Ray. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Today, we have a bit of a follow-up to one of the last live streams that I did specifically as it related to the Frankfurt Declaration. And we have a special guest with us today, Stephen Lloyd, who's one of the authors of the Frankfurt Declaration. Uh, he definitely reached out after the last live stream that we did on this and was, you know, very encouraged at you know, people like this, Evangelical Dark Web and others. And John Harris recently did a live stream or not a live stream. He did an interview on his podcast with one of the uh, signers, I believe. So we're just trying to get the word out there because this is a pretty unique uh, time in Christian history. You know, definitely a more heated time in Christian history. There's been a lot of statements that have come out the last few years with the Nashville statement, the Dallas statement, and now the Frankfurt Declaration. So we're just going to be uh, just going through the, uh, just learning more about the process, a little bit more about the behind the scenes of how such a document came to be written and in an area of the world that might be more surprising, and that is Frankfurt, Germany. So I, just as an American, I, find, I found that detail a little bit surprising. But, you know, Stephen Lloyd is one of the authors here. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, and just so we're clear, uh, this is a live stream, so live chat is welcome. I'm not sure how much we're going to go to chat questions, but if you have a chat question that's not one of the questions that I have prepared, feel free to ask it. Otherwise, you know, one of the things that you pointed out to me was that you are a missionary in France, but one of the, the only American who wrote the Frankfurt Declaration. So just kind of describe how you became a missionary in France. Well, I felt uh, called to full-time Christian service when I was in high school. And while I was in college, I had an opportunity to come to France as a summer missionary. And through that experience, I sensed that God was, was calling me to be a missionary. Uh, but at the end of that summer, I prayed and said, Lord, I'm willing to go anywhere you want, but please don't send me back to France. Um, and of course, God has a sense of humor and this is where we wound up being but uh, my concern about coming back was just because france is a very difficult place it has uh, been called the graveyard of missionaries it is uh, one of the top countries for people who come as missionaries and then go home discouraged um, not to come back but uh, god did open the door and let us um, to where we are. We, we spent eight years in the Paris area uh, where I was the director of a small Bible school. We then went to Moscow, Russia for one year where I helped to create a new seminary there. Uh, and then we have been here in the south of France working in the city of Narbonne for 23 years. So, so that's one of my questions is, is there a difference between Northern France and Southern France as it relates to, I don't know, the receptiveness of Christianity? I'm kind of curious because it's, I know it's not just a homogenous nation through and through. Yeah. Well, you have, um, in France, only about 1.6% of the population are evangelical Christians. So we are a very, very small minority. Um, uh, approximately 10% of the population is Muslim. And there are two areas in uh, France that have a higher percentage of Protestants in general and evangelicals in particular. And that would be in Northeast France, the Alsace-Lorraine area, which has more of a Protestant heritage because of their ties with Germany. Okay, and then so in the, the South- area. Or yeah, Fleming and then in the south of France, uh, where well, yeah, Strasbourg and around there, and and so then in the south of France, where you had a lot of the the French Huguenots uh, lived. Uh, what exactly is their history uh, that that you would reference that in relation to like well, Protestantism they, or? France. Yeah, the, the French Huguenots were, were basically Calvinists. They it was the Reformed Church 
Um, John Calvin, of course, had his main church in, in Geneva, but he was French. And uh, okay. under some of the French kings, uh, it w being Protestant was made illegal. People were put in prison. Um, many left. I mean, there was a big exodus of French Huguenots all around the world, to the UK, to the US, to South Africa, to Russia. Uh, they spread all over. Okay. So how was the response to lockdowns in France uh, from the public and from the church? And why mm -hmm. do you think that that was? We had, at the very beginning of COVID, we had a very unfortunate situation in that the first major COVID outbreak in France came as a result of a large evangelical conference. There were a couple of thousand people who attended and several hundred got COVID and took it home with them. And that caused people in France in general to have a very negative view of, of evangelical Christians, which historically the French press has tended to portray us as a cult anyway. Um, but the reaction of the people, like, I think like most everywhere else, the initial reaction was just fear. Uh, all the things that were being shown on television and being said, uh, people just dropping dead in the streets, supposedly in China. Uh, what we saw was that uh, similar to some other countries, roughly one third of the population was standing in line wanting to be the first person to get the shot when it came available. Uh, another third really didn't want to get the shot, but they believed what they were told, that their life would go back to normal if only they got the shot. And about another third uh, refused to take it. Uh, the lockdowns, everybody complied with that first, you know, three weeks to slow the spread type of thing. It, I think it caught us off guard. Nobody was really expecting it. Um, churches, some churches did nothing. Uh, a few started doing live streaming of their services. I got an account on YouTube and, and just started posting the sermon part, but we didn't have the rest of the service for that first three week period. Um, after the initial lockdown, the Roman Catholic Church and the Muslims put pressure on the government so that when they had the following lockdowns, churches were still allowed to remain open. Uh, the, we have a, a group in France that represents the evangelical churches to the government but again, because we are such a small percentage, they have no political clout whatsoever. And they were basically prepared to just do whatever the government asked. Um, for over a year, we were forbidden to have church meals and we were encouraged to, to put off, to postpone baptisms. Wow. In some I, ways, that sounds yeah, a lot I, less restrictive than, you know, what we saw here in the States, uh, you know, because I live in Maryland. So it was definitely one of the more lockdown, mm -hmm. pro lockdown states. Um, and then you got examples like Gavin Newsom's California or actually Whitmer. I wanted to say her, but she was extreme on lockdowns. But I think even she didn't lock down churches. But New York, I believe, mm -hmm. is very pro lockdown of churches as well. So. A lot of major states were actually apparently worse than that of France. And it's interesting that, you know, the Muslims and Catholics team up uh, to apply pressure on the on the state like that. Well, I think they did it independently of each other. <laughs> oh, but uh, both of those have significant clout. So, so... Was there or do you have a general sense and disappointment in how the American government as well as the church in America responded to COVID? Yeah, with regard to the American government, um, you know, we followed the news online and that type of thing. I don't think disappointment is the word I would use for the government. Um, for them, this was one of those never let a good crisis go to waste moments. 
Um, so I wasn't surprised. I wasn't happy with what they did, but I was not at all surprised. I just th thought it was wrong. Uh, I was somewhat disappointed with the reaction of churches, but even of myself um, being taken unawares in that initial lockdown period. I mean, we now know from uh, Dr. Burks, who was one of uh, the people, in addition to Dr. Fauci, who was um, serving as a counselor first to Trump and then to Biden, uh, she has admitted in her book that even when they had the first three-week uh, lockdown, they were already planning the, the following lockdowns. It was never going to just be three weeks. Um, but one of the things that frustrated me here in France was that there was a, a group called the, the Protestant Evangelical Ethics Commission, and they put out a document entitled, For the Love of God and Your Neighbor, Get Vaccinated. That sounds that strangely like me. the ERLC in the United States. Um, I mean, even but, you know, my feeling. Okay. My, my feeling was that it was really not the church's business to tell people that they should or should not take it. Um, I, I only had a few people in our church who even asked my opinion, and I told them they needed to talk to their doctor and do their own research and make their own decision. Yeah, so, we definitely but saw, I, I, I oh, we definitely saw in the United States that there was a lot of churches. In fact, the government would actually conspire with evangelical leaders to promote the vaccine. And Francis Collins was kind of exposed as like the spear tip of that. And, you know, if you look into mm -hmm. Francis Collins, like there is nothing really, I don't want to say redeeming, but, you know, he's theologically wrong on pretty much every major issue, yet he calls himself an evangelical, despite the fact that his theology is like way, you know, main mainline denomination. Well, I don't know that that's what happened here, but uh, it certainly looked like it could have been written by someone in the government. Um, I, I felt so strongly enough about it that even while we were working on the Frankfurt Declaration, uh, I wrote up a response um, to this uh, command, a call to, to get vaccinated. And I presented the opposite side, not to discourage people from getting vaccinated, because at that point, um, basically, everybody who intended to had already been vaccinated. Uh, it, yeah. We were at the point where people were starting to decide whether or not they were going to uh, take the never-ending succession of boosters. But uh, anyway, I, I put that that's up on my Substack that I think you've um, put the the link to. Yes, your Substack is linked in the description. And one of the questions I have about the you know, when France was flirting with the jab passports, how much impact did the protest that occurred in response to that have? I think it did have an impact. Now, one of the things that, um, an experience that I had early on when we came to the south of France here, there was, um, they had a late freeze and it affected the vineyard wine growers. And I knew a person who was in on some of the meetings with the French cabinet. And as they were talking with them about uh, possible help, one of the cabinet ministers of the, of the French government uh, said to, to these representatives, they said that uh, if nothing is broken, we can't give you any help. And so the people went back and told their people and they went out and had a few riots and then the government helped them. And uh, I think that so often protests or in some cases, protests are actually organized and encouraged by the governments to give them an excuse to do what they already want to do. This was not one of those cases with regard to the uh, vaccine passports. And, um, uh, Generally, if it's just a little bit of protest, they let people say what they want to say, and then the government goes ahead and does what it wants to do. But this went on week after week after week, and the government eventually did back off 
at least for the moment, on the vaccine passport. Part of that was because we had our presidential elections. And uh, so, and there were plans for much of this stuff to come back after Macron was reelected. But then uh, a short time after the presidential election, they had the elections uh, for the Senate and uh, for basically the French Congress. And that did not go to Macron's party. And so there is somewhat of a deadlock and he has not been able to simply do whatever he wants to do. That's an interesting update on French politics, because uh, again, it's hard to keep up with a system like France's. Like I can kind of understand British Parliament, Canada is a complete mess, but it's good to know that there's more hope for French politics than British politics, or even Canadian politics. Well, at least here in France, the voting is all done on paper ballots and all votes are counted within a matter of three or four hours. That is just incredibly efficient. And, you know, we're just jealous of that here in the States for sure. Um, but I, I asked that question because I was pretty interested because America, we didn't really see a protest in response to lockdowns all that much, like certainly not when it was happening. And then we saw earlier this year that we wanted to copy the Canadian trucker convoy, but that was just a complete racket so that the people that were the leaders of that could go meet congressmen or whatever. And it was just, uh, mm. I, I would call that a LARP. The Canadian protest, I would say, was very effective and the Australian protests were effective. I wanted to ask about France because I feel like the French kind of protest for a living. I get a general sense yes. about that. Yes. So, you know, yeah. and then there's a lot of protests going on in Europe at the moment. And, yeah, I'm not sure how much of an impact mm -hmm. it has. So my next question is I, time will tell. We'll, uh, dive into the Frankfurt Declaration itself. And if you have any questions in the chat, just because I see the chat growing, feel free to send uh, your questions in and I'll work them in if they're not already on my list. Uh, how did the initial gathering of the Frankfurt signers occur? In order to explain that, I need to go back kind of to the beginning. And I, and I know you have a question a little bit later on about the timing of uh, our coming out with the uh, Frankfurt Declaration. But um, uh, it was about March, I think, of uh, 2021 there was a, a gentleman in the UK who's an elder in his local church who reached out to a number of people and someone else that I was in conversations with over uh, through email encouraged me to contact this person. And there, there was a small group of us who had been feeling some of these concerns for, for a number of months at that point and feeling like something needed to be done and we were struggling to know what. And so this fellow in the UK kind of brought us together. We had an initial uh, Zoom call that had about eight people on it. And then there were others that joined in as we started exchanging ideas by email. There were probably 15, 20 people who were putting out ideas and basically got us to the point of of uh, a basic outline for what eventually became the Frankfurt Declaration. And at that point, there was a decision within the group to divide into two, with one part of the group working to develop a more popular narrative style document, um, which I think that that group is still working on, and then the other group to write a more theological document, which would be aimed at everyone, but especially at pastors. Now, I was part of the second group, along with a German pastor, Tobias, who um, was on the interview with Josh Harris that you mentioned, and a, a South African pastor. Um, and so the three of us then were the ones who, who wrote the, the Frankfurt Declaration based on that outline that we had from the larger group. Um, the end of August, this just less than a month ago, the, the German pastor uh, informed us that he was going to be participating in a, 
pastors conference and he wanted to to share the declaration with that group uh, and the meeting was in Frankfurt Germany which is so that's why we decided to to call it the Frankfurt declaration um, and he did that and his church also put together the the website and he's running that and as far as the initial signers go they came basically from the people that the three of us had sent the declaration out to at various moments as we were developing it uh, and these were people who had written back and given us feedback with suggestions for improvements um, so that you know that's where those initial signers came from So just to recap, the timeline started in March of 2021. Mm -hmm. And then the ongoing process took uh, a year and a half, we'll round up. About a year and a half, yeah. So that's pretty interesting, uh, just to know the, uh, the timeline of that. And historically speaking, in Protestant tradition, we had the Magdeburg Confession, which was drafted, I believe, in response during the siege of Magdeburg when Charles V, who at the time was the most powerful man in Europe, was outside the city limits of Magdeburg. And I forget what year that was, but was that declaration, which or the confession of the Magdeburg, the Magdeburg confession, which kind of articulated the doctrine of interposition and of uh, sphere sovereignty, was that an inspiration for the Frankfurt declaration not for me and i reached out to the other two co-authors and one of them said that it wasn't for him uh, either the the third tobias the german uh, pastor who worked on this uh, he said that inspiration might be a little bit too strong but it, he did have that and a couple of other documents in the back of his mind as we were working on this Okay. I mean, it's, it's a heavily Lutheran mm -hmm. confession. So, uh, like it calls crude mm -hmm. Baptist, like heretics and stuff like that. But other than that, you know, it's actually pretty good on the specific issues that it's trying to address. <laughs> but, uh, okay. Um, I, I, I just wanted to know, cause it's a little remembered document from the 16th century. So was there any disagreement or lack of unity in articles to put in the statement? You know, I, I think it would be fair to say that all three of us were amazed at the unity that God gave us as we prepared the declaration. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about what should or should not be included. And at certain points and for certain parts, uh, each one of us had our own preferred wording for some of the ideas that we were wanting to communicate. but. I don't think there was any dissension at any time. It, it's in a sense, it, it's nice that, to have an odd number working on something, because if you absolutely have to, you can have a vote and and you can reach a conclusion. But we never had to do that. Uh, we discussed a lot, and I don't even know how to explain it. But at the end of each discussion session, things just seemed to to fall into place, and there was general agreement uh, on what direction to go. Oh, wow. That, that's actually pretty interesting to hear of like a very strong unity because I don't know how many faith declarations can say that they had such a strength and unity, but perhaps that's because, you know, the like-minded believers kind of who saw that this was a major issue kind of joined together and pulled their heads together to iron, sharpen iron, create something, you know, uh, succinct and meaningful to tackle an issue and you know because of subject matter interest I guess that can lead to a lot of unity that you know just getting the biggest names together wouldn't uh, on along those lines right. my only quibble with the Frankfurt declaration is that it is 
seemingly exclusively aimed at government and not the people in the church who fail to uphold Christ as the head. Can you speak to this issue? I did listen to your previous podcast, <laughs> and it was very clear that you felt strongly about this. And I, I think that because you do feel so strongly, you should feel free to share your opinion. And if you feel like you need to call pastors and churches to repentance, uh, do so. And, and I, I felt like you did some of that in the previous podcast. Um, I can say that we did talk about some of that within the group. And I'm not going to comment on what uh, uh, some of our number may or may not have done within their own ecclesiastical groups. But uh, we we did not feel led to include that in the declaration itself, rightly or wrongly. Uh, we realized that there are a whole lot of things that we didn't address that could have been addressed, but we really felt like we said what God put us together to say. So I don't know if that really responds to your question or not. I mean, I understand that the scope of the statement was aimed at government. I understand that. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, in terms of, I guess, my only quibble, and I use the word quibble because that's, you know, a lighter word than objection or uh, argument, I guess. But my quibble is that, you know, the standard of upholding Christ as head of the church isn't just for the state to recognize. The church must also come to recognize Christ as head of the church as well. Mm -hmm. So, but well, I understand this statement, you know, if it wants to be a cutting sword, would need to not be so broad in scope and, or blunt in scope. Well, and, and I can only speak for myself. I won't speak for, for the other two. Um, but I think at this point, my concern was more for where do we go from here? Um, and so my hope was that with this declaration, we might reach some people who sat on the fence or sat on what we would consider to be the wrong side of the fence. Um, but I'm the kind of person I feel that people need to make their own decisions and then accept the consequences of those decisions. And I, and I think there is room for, and, and I hope that this will create discussion and debate. And I certainly think that it has uh, started a lot of discussion and debate and, you know, it angered a lot of the wrong people for sure, uh, or angered a lot of the right people, I should say, uh, you know, just a lot of the people that, we're never on the right side of this issue or hardly any contentious hot button issue in the church. Uh, and, you know, I think, and I guess the next question I have was about the people who did sign the uh, declaration. I noticed that pretty much all the signers are to my knowledge reformed. I, you know, if someone's not reformed, my bad, I don't know, but uh, how intentional was this? Uh, well, it, it wasn't intentional. I, I, I'll explain. Um, you're not the only one who has had that impression. Several of the negative articles that have been written uh, have talked about it being a, a Calvinist declaration. But the signers are not exclusively Reformed. There are a lot of Reformed people among the signers. But that is mostly... Uh, because two of the three authors are come from a Reformed Baptist background, and those were the contacts that they had for the reaching out to people to, to help us um, along the way as we sought some advice from, from various people. But um, I am actually Wesleyan Arminian in my theology, and our intention was to write something that would be biblical, uh, not something that would be Calvinist or Wesleyan or tied to any one theological tradition. Um, 
and and we there are many signers who are from a reform background but we also have uh, wesleyan or methodist uh, pentecostal charismatics there there have even been some roman catholics who have signed and i saw that one of the people who signed indicated that they were jewish so um it, it's reached a lot of people there was a, a a catholic site here in france that put up a blog they didn't say a whole lot about it all they said basically was that some protestant pastors had put out this declaration and they gave a couple of the articles as examples and then they just gave the link uh, so it really wasn't positive or negative it was just information but the people who commented said it's about time somebody did something it's a shame that it wasn't the catholic church so but they were glad that somebody had done something and one of them commented you know they said i've read it and there's nothing in here that a, a catholic couldn't agree with and i signed it so um i i think the frankfurt declaration is something that not everybody's going to agree with um, but i think that there are people out there from all different theological uh, backgrounds who will find it to be biblical and well-reasoned uh, and those are the people that we're uh, trying to reach as well as those who are open to considering and discussing yeah i mean again i noted that yeah i didn't have an exhaustive knowledge of all the signers because we went through the signers almost exhaustively during the live streams like i don't really know the, a lot of these people but mm -hmm. the people that i did know were pretty much all reformed which made me just wonder that question right. and it's interesting to note that despite yeah. the name id of the reformed signers being a lot more widely known it wasn't actually the perception based off the high profile signers wasn't actually the reality of the declaration itself and i would further agree with you that it is not exclusively, you know, a Calvinist document by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's fairly ecumenical um, because it's proclaiming the something rather basic in a positive sense. It, it's claiming something fairly uh, basic and agreeable for Christian tradition. Uh, so along those lines, this is more of a theological question, I guess. But why do you think that denominations like Calvary Chapel and men like Sean Foyt did more to proclaim Christ as head of the church while those with a more robust th theology did not? And obviously this Frankfurt Declaration would be a massive shift in that department. But, you know, I'm just, you know, this is a question that I just have. is like, why were these people more outspoken on this issue during the time than the more robust theologically churches? Well, and I think that that may very well be an excellent question, but I would not even hazard a guess because I have no idea uh, why those people do what they do. Uh, I have a hard enough time figuring out why I do what I do. Um, but and and to you know, I have been uh, focusing on my ministry in France for 23 years. We haven't been back to the states very much during that time, and I'm just not overly aware uh, i had never even heard of sean no offense to sean uh, it says more about me than him uh, and while i have heard of calvary chapel it's kind of outside of, of theological circles so um i'm afraid i can't help you with that question do you ever get the sense that just as a follow-up that you know maybe more academically minded people might be slower to act or maybe that has something to do with it? Uh, you know, I have tried to think about that in, in a, a general sense, but not just for America, for France and for around the world. Uh, and I think it's, I think it comes down more to the fact that as, as American, as European Christians, we do have a high regard for the authorities that God has, the, the government authorities that God has put in place. And that is biblical. I think where all of us 
have been weak, or all of us, where myself and, and many others, I can't say that it's everybody, but I, I don't think that we had really thought through sufficiently the um, exclusions, the exceptions to, to that rule you know, found in scripture. Uh, we all are familiar with the give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. But distinguishing that, I think we have had it so easy and governments have generally been so supportive of religious freedom that I think we'd come to a point where we felt like, you, you know, unless the government tells you to renounce your faith and to declare that the state is God, well, apart from that, you just do whatever the government tells you because they're good people. And, and, and I think that it's, we're seeing now that it's much more complicated than that. And that actually, for instance, you know, when they tell you as a Christian that you have to let your parents, your grandparents, your brothers, your sisters, your spouse die alone in seclusion with, and you cannot be present to support them and encourage them. I mean, I think that is asking us in a sense to say, to deny Christ and to say that the state is God. But, you know, that's my, I've come to that through a time of reflection. And it's, it wasn't obvious when it first happened. I sensed that something wasn't right, but it took a while to try and work through that. And I'm still working through it. And I'm wondering what's gonna happen next. Uh, and that's what I'm wanting to get prepared for. Uh, may I respond to this chat for a second? Uh, it's mm -hmm. worth it to sign this. It'll be remembered long after this time in history, which does lead to my next question, which is, do you think that the Frankfurt Declaration came on time or too late? Well, as we already said, I, we spent a year and a half putting it together. And obviously, you know, it wasn't nonstop. Uh, we had a lot of other things going with our responsibilities with our local churches and things. But you may be surprised to hear me saying this since I've just told you that I'm uh, Wesleyan Arminian. But I do believe that God, in his sovereignty, has caused the declaration to come out at just the right time. Uh, we will have to wait and see what God chooses to do with it. Um, but but I think it is the right time. Uh, so I thought about this question as well. And while I do think that most of COVID is over, I don't think it's completely over. You're, we're going to see what people try to do this winter. But in the grand scheme of Christian history, how many times has it taken we're, let's call it two and a half years to respond to a major theological concern. Uh, you cannot yeah, say that about the Nash. You can't say that about the Nashville statement. They wait until after the Supreme Court ruled on gay marriage to issue that, and then a couple years later, I believe that that came out in like 2018, and then the Dallas statement on social justice and the gospel that came out at least uh, I don't know maybe. You could argue it came out 30 years after the fact, uh, certainly at least 10 years after the fact that this was an issue in the church. And I feel like there's another statement, like the Chicago statement, if we want to go back a couple decades, you know, that wasn't exactly right when uh, the issue of modernism was mm -hmm. just starting out into the church. So in my grand scheme of Christian history, and obviously we can go even further and further back. And you'll probably see that because of the way travel worked, you know, things took longer to address, you know, how long did it take to address Arianism uh, in the church? So in the grand scheme of things, I think this was actually pretty quick. Like this is pretty quick. Like well, the church actually, didn't even respond I to the issue of abortion this quickly. I would suggest that uh, we may even be ahead of the curve. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Because really, the Frankfurt Declaration is not, 
primarily about COVID. Now, COVID was the catalyst, and many of our specific examples are related to what was done during COVID. But we recognize that there is more coming. There are countries where government leaders are not yet finished with COVID. There is still talks about mandating uh, the now useless vaccine because the, the the strain of COVID, you know, you can argue whether it was ever <laughs> effective. Uh, but what is clear is that the strain of COVID that it was supposed to protect people from no longer exists. Um, right. But there are other things coming. There are already, uh, Bill Gates and others have promised us that there is another pandemic on the way. There are talks already in place here in Europe about having lockdowns to protect the world from climate change. Um, there are talks, the European Union still wants to have European-wide vaccine passports or digital identities. There's a lot more coming and we need to prepare for that. And, and that's why I, I feel that uh, churches that were caught off guard, I mean, some people responded at a local level fairly quickly, but so many people are still laboring under the opinion that, that the government really didn't know what it was talking about and that this was all about health and the common good and all of that sort of thing. While yeah. some of the rest of us are convinced that it was never about health, it was always about control. And um, I would say, and, and that was obvious from the beginning. Like, you know, I followed the issue, you know, back, way back to January, February of 2020. I was kind of like keeping a pulse on what's going on in this city called Wuhan, China. And then you kind of learn it's like, well, no, they didn't have the evidence to justify their actions at the time. They just used fear. And that, mm -hmm. you know, and, I, you know, perhaps people also have like a, doomsday eschatology but i saw this as a religious movement early on because this was an eschatology that had a creation myth so to speak of the bats and stuff in the wet markets and then they had a workspace salvation mm -hmm. to save you from this doomsday which was all the lockdowns and mandates and jabbing and masking and all that other stuff so and then, of course, they had their high priest. So it really just, you know, trickles down into a religion quite nicely in terms of comparison. And the or way unnicely. that people, or not, yeah. And the way that people just devoted themselves to this, it gave them a purpose in life. And they felt so self righteous in that, which is why I kind of feel more strongly about, you know, the people, the people are the problem as well as the government. Uh, to go back to the earlier quibble, like that's part of the reasons because, you know, in America, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, suicide rates increasing, but overall the suicide rates actually dropped. And that drop was made up in adult white, I, I believe I want to say women, but it was adult white people. Like every other group went up like double digits in percentage, but it was like adult white people. So your proverbial Karen felt purpose in life by masking up and locking down, they felt like a good purpose or a good person and stuff. And that, and that's my hypothesis, hypothesis about why this demographic decrease in suicide rate while the other ones increase double digit. So mm -hmm. that, that, that's well, just a hypothesis, I, I religious think, fervor. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, one of the best books to help people understand what was really going on and what is still going on is the third book of C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, uh, That Hideous Strength. And it shows government tyranny, but it also shows the spiritual battles that are behind it. All right. And I want to issue a last call if you're in the chat for questions, because I'm running out of my own questions. So if you want to send a question, you have a question, feel free to send it in uh, right now. Uh, 
So what sort of impact do you think the Frankfurt Declaration will have going forward? You made reference to the fact that you think that it's ahead of the curve. So what do you think it'll have going forward? Well, I, I think, you know, I would love to think that the declaration might actually make a difference in a positive way in the attitude of world leaders. But unless we get more than a million signers, I don't think that will happen. But who knows? Somebody, I'm sure that there are people in government agencies that are reading it. Um, but realistically, I think that it has the possibility of having a twofold impact within the Christian community. I think first, it serves as an encouragement for those who do agree with the declaration, many of whom have felt like they were all alone. Uh, because the government has tried to make those kind of people feel that they were all alone and feel that they were the problem. And then secondly, I, my hope is that it would encourage uh, discussion and reflection on how Christians should respond to tyranny. Uh, there are apparently a lot of people out there, as I've already said, that feel that unless it is something so clear that nobody can mistake it. We should all just obey whatever the government says. Um, and, and I don't think that's what the scriptures teach, but we have to be very careful in how we understand that. We certainly are not encouraging uh, armed rebellion anywhere, uh, but we're encouraging people to do what is right. Now, not everybody's going to agree on what that means, but I think we need to be talking about it. And because I'm convinced that there is more coming, we need to get prepared so that we're not taken off guard the next time, which is just right around the corner, I'm sure. And, you know, I certainly hope that that's the case. I mean, we got some heavy hitters, you know, from an American church perspective that were signers of that declaration so I'm actually encouraged that, you know, these people, in a sense, won't be fooled again. And, you know, and you're right to say that they're not just going to quit while they're ahead when it came to the power that they got during lockdowns. They got a lot more that, you know, damage they can do, a lot more businesses that they can overthrow. Uh, and um who knows what other control or wars that they want to start, which is why I kind of want to talk about wars and rumors of wars because of, you know, the great reset chess pieces are moving uh, in ways all across the world right now. It's just crazy. But in terms of like America, you know, I, I kind of am afraid that 2020 was our 1204. Uh, you know, Constantinople, you know, it gets sacked and they never really run from that. I'm afraid of that. But, you know, it, at least if the church does get stronger in this sense as a result, uh, that can lead to a, the saving this or reviving of this nation. And if we could theoretically get through the next 10 to 15 years, I don't think, uh, I think we'll have the, a demographic advantage to actually make longer lasting political reforms than we do right now. So time, time will tell. Time will tell. And so I think that God's will will be done. And there is, it, it, it's awfully easy to be frightened or at least concerned, but I think it's important for us to remember um, what Paul said to Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And we need to put that to work for the kingdom. And I fully agree with that. That's you know why I do the things that I do. And I'm not really afraid to put my name out there, despite the fact that I'm not the most cancel-proof individual. Like some people are a lot more cancel-proof, which is why they can do this. Other people are like supported by their church ministry, nothing against that but they have more liberty to speak out on these issues because uh, it's, you know, mm -hmm. part of their job description. 
but you know, I'm not afraid to do that. And I'm glad to hear that, you know, even in, uh, you know, perceived, you know, America, a lot of Americans would say that France is theologically dead or beyond repair, but, or, you know, so post-Christian and stuff that is, you know, the dust off your sandals. And you began this interview by stating that it was kind of like, you know, where ministry missionaries go to lose hope or get discouraged. And then here you are in that neck of the woods, Yes, you know, being a strong witness, uh, how can people support your ministry efforts? They can pray. And we need prayer more than anything else. If they would like to know more about the church here in France or our work as missionaries, uh, and if they would like to get on our mailing list to, to receive uh, updates by email, they can go to the church website, uh, which you have the link for. It's the EPE dash narbon dot fr slash en that takes them to the english side of our website our church is bilingual it's a french church but it has a french and english ministry uh, and they can reach me through the contact page there and i can add them to our mailing list but we appreciate people's prayers and i'd encourage everyone if they haven't already done so to go to frankfurt declaration dot com and take a look at uh, at the declaration read it carefully and if they are in agreement or substantial agreement uh, we would be thrilled to have them put their name to it as well yes i would encourage everyone to sign it as well i did it live on the air as Ephraim mentioned and you know it's five articles a preamble and i think i don't know what you call the epilogue or back conclusion or whatever but pretty short all things considered uh and you know I, I really like the uh the way it's written how it's worded uh again i only had one quibble with it and it wasn't what was in it so i encourage everyone to sign it otherwise if you stuck around this long don't forget to like the stream also subscribe to the channel because if you stuck around this long and you haven't what are you doing and if you want to support evangelical dark web uh, we have an, a newsletter that's linked in the description as well, or Telegram. They're kind of the same, uh, both linked in the description as well. If you really want to support us, uh, you can do so for as little as $5 a month on our Patreon-like system. I mentioned that I wasn't completely cancel-proof, but, you know, this ministry is less cancel-proof than I am uh, because, you know, we built our own Patreon because they censor people. So if you want to do that, go ahead and over there. Otherwise... Have a blessed day. Leave a comment below about what you think about what we've said today. And we will catch you on the next one.